This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation, who support reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopea.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Louise Brady. That relationship with money is so fleeting. I mean, it's not even, that's not even a real thing. Whereas our environment, the herring, the ocean, the whales, the eagles, the ravens, the land, that's what's real. Louise Brady is a woman of the Tlingit Nation in Shikla, an island off the coast of Southeast Alaska. She is Raven Frog or Kiksadi Clan. Kiksadi women are known as the Herring Ladies and have original instructions that connect them spiritually, culturally, and historically to Herring. She is the founder of Herring Protectors, a grassroots movement of people that share concerns that the Herring population in Shikla and the culture tied to it are under threat. Over the last three years, Herring Protectors have helped put on two Honor the Herring Kuik that honored the sacred relationship the Tlingit people have with the Herring and the role they play in our way of life. Well, Louise, thank you so much for joining us. I feel so indebted to your homelands, and it's a great honor to be speaking with you about this place that is so powerful and important. Um, so I, I'm very honored and very excited to be having this time with you. Thank you very much for being, for allowing me to be here today. We're getting really close to what we're going to talk about, herring time. So mm-hmm. it's just really beautiful here today. And we've had some snow. And as one of my granddaughters would say, it's like a winter wonderland. It sounds so beautiful. (laughs) Well, I'm wondering to begin if you'd like to introduce yourself to our listeners. My Tlingit name is Kashichtla. I am Kiksadi. We use the frog as our crest. I am grandchild of the Kaantan 
which is the Wolf Clan. And we Kiksadi women are known as the Herring Ladies. Hmm. Oh, thank you so much for grounding us in that introduction. So, Luis, you know, many of us think of the Pacific Northwest as a place of abundance. However, for those who are not intimately acquainted with the ecosystem, they might not intuitively think of herring as such foundational kin that feed everything from Chinook, seals, birds, and whales, including the endangered southern resident whales. So to preface herring protectors, I wonder if you can speak to the extent that herring nourish North Pacific marine ecosystems and how many will go hungry should they continue to be overfished by industry? The herring are the foundation of our ecosystem here. We live right on the edge of the Pacific Ocean on an island. So we eat a lot of salmon, a lot of seafood, halibut. We originally had a food economy, which was basically based on the harvest season. And the food that we eat, as you mentioned, the salmon, the halibut, the seals, the whales, all depend on a healthy herring population. And one of the things that I noticed is that in other places around Southeast Alaska, where the herring populations have crashed, they have very small salmon, comparatively speaking. So if we lose this herring population, and so many other places in Southeast Alaska and British Columbia, uh, the populations have crashed over the years, and I would say probably for the last 100 years that the herring have been fished near, I would say, extinction. Of course, others might not agree with it. So it would be a matter of, we would not just lose the herring, we would lose so much of all of the other foods that we depend upon. And the herring eggs for us are very important spiritually, culturally, and physically. Well, I want to emphasize the respect and gratitude that has always been given to herring throughout Southeast Alaska outside of commercial fishing. And I think one of the ways this is done so beautifully is how herring eggs have been traditionally harvested through the placement of hemlock and cedar bows in the water versus the violent and wasteful way that commercial industry collects eggs. So can you explain these two different approaches as an example of how industry is unable to be in relationship? As people were taught to have respect and in fact, when I went to one of our grandmothers, I was in my early 20s, I really wanted to know what our culture was about. And I thought she was going to sit me down and teach me everything. And she said, if there's one word, it's respect. And there's a phrase in Tlingit, it's ya'atwune, which is respect for all things. And it's not just for what we would consider living things, but just everything and everyone we encounter. So when 
our harvesters go out to gather the herring eggs. They have to go in to the forest and cut down a hemlock tree. Some people cut down the branches or cut the branches, but some cut down trees. And we give thanks to the tree for giving its life for our life so that we can live. And we go out and set the branches and we just tie a rock to them. And then the herring will come and lay their eggs on the branches. So we're not killing any herring at all. So there's respect involved. And then we bring um, the branches in and we share with family. And it's a really... Um, communal time. It's it's a time where we celebrate each other and you know the return of a spring and the abundance of the herring and the abundance of this land and this water that we were so blessed to be born on and born into this culture. And we realize that you know we can't take any more than we need. But with the fishing industry it's completely different. It's actually really, it is really violent. The sacro is considered a delicacy in the Japanese culture. And so the saners, which is a type of fishing, have been coming here for herring, I would say at least for since the 70s, and being the herring overseas, the sacro overseas when they fish for the herring or the back row they don't they don't use the herring and nowadays because we believe because of the overfishing sometimes it takes days for them to get their quota there's a set quota by the department of fishing game and they have to be a certain size and a, and a certain weight and if they don't get that in when it, let's say they get a ton of herring in one set. But they're not the correct size. They will catch them in the net and then it's not the right size and they release them. Well, I was talking to one of our tribal biologists and he said, when they do that, if you were to have a camera under the water, you could see their scales floating down to the ocean floor. And just like with us and our skin, our skin protects us, their scales protect them. And so that makes the herring susceptible to infection and to illness. Also, uh, when they do a set, and again, if it's if they're not if they don't meet the size requirements, and they pull the net up out of the air, and you have all of these herring, and you're crushing some of the herring and suffocating some of them, and then they'll let them go. And even when they do find the ones the right size, they take the macro out and then they grind the herring up for dog food or to feed farmed salmon. It's such an incredible waste. And yes, it is violent. Thank you so much for sharing those details. Yeah, just as industry encroached over Southeast Alaska, a dozen official herring management sites were developed to provide commercial harvest. 
as well as subsistence herring egg harvest. And I understand that currently 11 of these have been overfished to near extinction, with the Sitka Sack Row fishery being the last site to provide any sort of noticeable harvest. So how have these fisheries been chronically mismanaged, and why has the state of Alaska allowed this to happen continuously across so many different historical herring fisheries? That's a really good question. I first testified before the Board of Fish. So the Board of Fish, state of Alaska oversees fisheries. And the Board of Fish, the Board of Fisheries is a board of nine people that, uh, I guess, sit and listen to testimony from the public about the fisheries. And the Sitka tribe of Alaska has been going before the board at least for 25 years. I would say more like 30 to 35 years. And a lot of the people who testify are basically the, the fishermen, the people who have the permits to fish the herring. And the state board of fish listens to their biologists. And the state biologists have a specific formula that they use to calculate the number of herring that are in the area. One of the things that has we believe has happened is that the baseline that's being used is already a de- depleted baseline. The baseline only goes back to the 70s, whereas our oral histories go back at least hundreds of years. So with this inaccurate baseline, that started, we believe, with an already depleted population. Department of Fish and Game came in and said, okay, you know, they, they set a 20% uh, limit for the fishermen. This year, the guideline harvest level is 33,000 tons. And what we've been seeing happening here is like, I remember back in, probably going back to the 80s and the 90s, there were 50, maybe 51, 52, somewhere around there, fishermen who would come in. And the Department of Fish and Game would come in and they would open the fishery. And sometimes the fishermen would get their quota in an hour. Now, sometimes it takes weeks. And it's because the fishery is depleted and the state comes back with, well, no, herring move around. In fact, I mean, there's always, there's always a reason to move forward with a fishery, I guess is the bottom line. Um, two years ago, there was a fishery and I believe that the fleet got maybe one third of the allocated tonnage. And last year, there wasn't even a fishery. 
And I will tell you, just it, you know, last year was the first time in many, many years, so many of us noticed we could just after two years, we could smell the herring in town because the herring have gone offshore, um, the island I talked about to cruise off. And it was so nice. And we saw, it's like the whole sound used to turn this beautiful, beautiful turquoise blue, what we call it Mediterranean blue. There were so many herring here, but it's just, I, I think so much of it is that depleted baseline and the science that is, really, I think, accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such an important point to talk about shifting baselines. And when the baseline is from the 70s, you know, and then management is based off a time after colonization, after commercial resource extraction had already started, it's not, it's not accurate. And how could it be and then all of the impacts it has when you're managing a fishery or a land based off an incorrect baseline or mm. a problematic baseline. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that's a nuance and a particularity that many of us probably don't even consider. And so when we're questioning extinction crises it's really important to take in all this information so thank you yes and i don't know if you went to the national historical park when you were here i did yeah oh one of the elders um who has since passed he would say you know the flats the beach flats go really far out and he when the herring were in when he was a child he said that you could just stick a paddle in the water and it would stand up by itself the herring eggs were so thick and friends of mine in the 70s they said you know they wouldn't even have to go fishing to catch herring they would just take a bucket down to the um beach ponds or you know down to the the footbridge and just a bucket in the water and pull it out and it'd be full of herring so it's it's happening quickly i would say Givers swimming upstream, life givers swimming upstream, oh life givers swimming upstream, I see you thriving. Life givers swimming upstream, life givers swimming upstream, oh Swimming upstream, I see you thriving. I can see the wall holding your blood back, turn to waterfalls. Down it comes crashing. I can see the land bring back the peoples who always belonged here. I can see the wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, this is less of a question and more of an observation, but one of our greatest problems with globalization seems to be the loss of reverence that takes place as something becomes more and more accessible. And 
I think I was referencing this a bit earlier with the abundance of choices we now have versus the actual abundance of place because herring is currently used in so many different ways. Like you were mentioning a while ago, it's in pet food and fertilizer. It's used in fish meal for aquariums and salmon farms. Mm. And it's also sold as a delicacy in Japan because Japan has already depleted their own herring source. And yeah, so I just wonder if you could speak to the absurdity of herring being murdered in mass to ultimately feed farm salmon when many ecosystems across the Pacific Northwest are severely struggling because wild salmon and whales don't even have enough to eat. Or perhaps just personally what comes up for you thinking about this global disrespect that's taking place and the sort of spiritual ramification of it. I I really believe that that's at the point of this because Tlingit culture in many, well, I'll just speak to Tlingit culture because that's what I come from, is based on relationships. And as I said, it, that phrase, is respect for all things. That means for each other and for everything, you know, for the herring. And we as a community have been going to the Board of Fish and trying to explain, this is what I believe, trying to explain how important herring are to us before the Board of Fish. And when I testified in 1997, it's a very sterile environment. Um, you know, there's nine people sitting at tables with microphones and papers and staff, and everybody's, you know, behind the line. And you can't go past that line to talk to the any of the board members unless you have permission. And you have to sign up to testify. And when you do testify, you get three minutes. And we are orators. And in order for us to speak in public in our own culture, we need to introduce ourselves and tell people how we're related to them because that tells them that we know them. And, you know, the first time I saw the board, I was very upset because we had asked elders to go and testify. And they were barely through with their introductions and their time's up. And there was, you know, the board chairman is like, okay, I'm sorry, your time is up, your time is up. And they wouldn't give them any more time. And we have been doing that for 25 years. And when I thought about that, I, I had been working with some friends on uh, another project. And we decided we wanted to do some work locally, basically grassroots work. And so we decided to work on herring. And I had this idea that because I introduced myself as a herring lady, we have a very old, old story, probably ancient story about the herring rock here in Sitka. And there was a young lady who this time of year in March, it's like it's some some days it's really really beautiful, but most people in March in the old days 
be getting ready to go out hunting, to go out fishing, to go out, you know, um, just getting ready to be outside because the weather was going to get so much better. There was this one young lady, though, she she wasn't helping anybody. She would just go down to the beach in the village and sit there. And a lot of the people from the village thought that she was just being lazy, that she didn't want to help anyone. And so, you know, they were getting really upset with her. But what she had been doing is she was going down to the specific rock in the channel by the village. And she was singing to the heron. And one day, it was a nice, beautiful, glorious, sunny day. You could see out to the Pacific Ocean and you could see the Mount Edgecombe in the distance and the islands and the ocean was just blue and it was nice and warm. And she fell asleep. It was low tide. This one fell asleep on that rock and then the tide was coming in. She was sleeping. And when she woke up, the tide was high and the herring had been laid eggs in her hair. And that's because they acknowledged her invitation to come back to Shipka. And so that's when the story of the herring rock was born. And so it's said in all of Southeast Alaska, that is where the herring turned to first, is the herring rock. And you know, some people may think of those as just stories or legends. I prefer to call them our original instruction from creator, from whatever you know you want to call that higher being that connects us all. And as I was thinking of that, I thought should we should have a ceremony to honor the herring. And it really hadn't been done. And I talked to our elders, I talked to our clan leader, I talked to some other local elders and told them that this was what I wanted to do. And they said, yes, that would be really good. And so we had our first herring creek and as we were moving through it, preparing for the ceremony, we make you know a lot of gifts. There was weaving and there was crocheting and there was drum making and some people made paddles to give to our guests, our invited guests. And it was a really powerful way to cement those relationships with each other, to come together and to make things. Because also in our culture, um, I'm also a Raven's Tail weaver. And my mentor, Terry Rothkar, always would tell me, whatever is in your heart comes out in your hands. So we always really need to be careful how we approach whatever it is we're making, whatever it is we're saying, um, we always need to have a good heart. And we opened the ceremony to the entire town of Sitka, Shitka. And here we have maybe 16, maybe 20% Alaska Native Tlingit. And I think that was the first time the ceremony was opened up. And for me, it was really, really beautiful. Some of those same elders who spoke for about three minutes at the Board of Fish 
were able to get up at the ceremony and talk about the relationship, our relationship as a Tlingit people to the herring and could talk about, you know, would go out here when I was a young person and the herring was plentiful and we'd go out here and the herring was plentiful. And, and we had four members of the Board of Fish Command. People just, you know, talked and were able, we were able to come together and celebrate our relationship with the herring. And it is spiritual. You know, spiritual, historical, cultural, emotional. It's like every part of our being. And when we tell these stories or our history, Western science, the fishermen, they say, yeah, but those are just stories. Where's your dad? And I was in a meeting with one of the permit holders. And a friend of mine had done research and he was talking about how plentiful the herring were. And he had some really good information. And this permit holder got up and said, yeah, but how are we going to pay our rent? How are we going to make money? And my response was, that's what you don't understand. It has nothing to do with money for us. And I really believe that a lot of people have gotten how to have any kind of relationship, much less healthy relationship with the environment and with each other. And I really hope that we can make a change with the herring, but I, I do know that we've made a change with each other. Um, because there are so many more people working together. And for me, that's what needs to happen. That's what I believe, is that we need to figure out what it is we love and then work together. Because that relationship with money is so fleeting i mean it's not even that's not even a real thing whereas our environment the herring the ocean the whales the eagles the ravens the land that's what's real and i have to say you know so far it's been an amazing journey working together and I am continuing to learn so much about myself. And I have to say, I'm just so grateful for everyone who's coming along on this journey because it's pretty incredible. Wow. <laughs> that is <laughs> so moving. Yeah, I'm just catching my, my heart for a moment. But in the Herring Protectors film... You talk about the joy of the harvest and how climate change and extractive industry are stripping away at place-based joy. And we often hear folks talk about how we're living in this critical time where we need to be experiencing joy as part of our activism. 
But so often that joy and pleasure is outsourced behaviors that are threatening the earth. So I'd like to bring in this topic of joy and context to herring protectors. And I wonder if you could share what this means for you. I have to say, so um, in my personal life, I really, there's still a lot of segregation that goes on in this community. And I would imagine in a lot of communities and the people that I ended up working with are probably people that I really not have worked with previously. And that's just because, you know, I am Tlingit. I'm from here. I have a dance group. My almost entire family lives here, and, which is 30 to 40 of us, nieces, nephews, sisters, um, grandchildren. And the way that uh, We were working, actually, we started working on Standing Rock and Standing Rock was going on. And the, the summer, that summer, people were going around town, we should do something for Standing Rock. We should do something for Standing Rock. And that, everybody kept saying that to each other. And so finally I said, okay, we're going to do something. And so we had a gathering to support Standing Rock. And there were probably 150, 200 people. And we sang some songs and had a couple of people who were um, that were that spoke and that had been down there. And then it, it was all fine and well. And um, that, people are like, somebody, should, we should do a fundraiser. We should do a fundraiser. I'm like, okay, we'll do a fundraiser. And, you know, in the Native community, we would have done something like probably clam chowder sale and fry bread. And I had a friend that knew this other group of people, and they wanted to do a fundraiser for Standing Rock. So we met back at the, down at the back door, and uh, this group wanted to do yoga for up. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I was just kind of laughing to myself. I mean, I had never done yoga, and again, this is part of, you know, not a lot of people, my friends, yoga. But we went ahead and we did this fundraiser together, and it was really good because, you know, there were uh, indigenous people, non-indigenous people, everybody had a sense. It was a really tumultuous time of, you know, wanting to come together and do something good. And so we did, and we raised maybe $8,000 and uh, collected traditional foods. So that group, we, I think, became so close and ended up having, you know, I think really enjoying being together and so we had another meeting and we decided, you know, we wanted to work together. And so we decided to work on the herring. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And then I suggested to go eat. And so we started meeting and having potlucks and, you know, people learned how to weave. And, you know, we brought in elders and culture bearers and, and, we had a lot of fun and we worked really, really hard. I mean, the kuih that we ended up having, um, the first one, we had to move it up by a month and it was like January, right after the holidays. And so we didn't get the word that it was moved up a month until like just before Christmas. And so it was a lot of work. 
you know, we all had other jobs and we worked on it every evening making gifts and we got it together. And there were like, that's a big deal because there were like 300 people at, at the ceremony. And uh, if you, if people get a chance to take a look at the film and the ceremony, you can just see the joy in everybody's faces. I mean, the elders, the, you know, the herring protectors, it's just amazing. And again, it's like, you know, what is, what is activism? You know, activism is making coffee. It's serving elders. It's cooking. It's, you know, it's getting to know each other in a very deep way to develop that trust so that we can have that joy. And that is part of our culture as well. That's a so many times we have these ceremonies and they're around death. Like we had a ceremony for my mother and my sister who passed away. And the first part is always the mourning. And we have it anywhere from a year to two or three years, however long it takes us to gather the gifts. And the first part is always the mourning. And we sing our mourning, our cry songs. And our culture is structured in such a way that our guests basically are there to wipe our tears ceremonially and when we dance to the cry songs that's our last cry and then we go into the happy part and I think that you know I think that people again uh, especially difficult during during COVID I think we have forgotten forgotten how to do so many things as a community. And that includes, you know, how to celebrate, how to celebrate our successes. And that has to be, that just really has to be a part of what we do if we call ourselves activists or, you know, I, I just, I don't think I'm an activist. Um, I'm not sure what I am, but joy is absolutely a must. It is absolutely a must. Because why else would, you know, why would Creator give such a beautiful, beautiful place if not to enjoy it? And I feel bad for people who live here and, you know, can't go out every day and just see the beauty and, and celebrate and the magic of, of, of being here.
Thank you for that reminder that seems so simple, but also so challenging in these times. And I think we need to keep reminding each other in just holding that gratitude for the magic and finding the beauty and allowing that beauty and that magic to sustain us to keep challenging these dominant systems that we know we need to push out. And yeah, and I'd like to move into a conversation around whether or not certain institutions will ever be compatible with the sort of respect that is so desperately needed. And in context to Herring, what I'm really thinking about is whether or not in an institution like the Alaska Board of Fish is equipped to understand the depth of relationship and connection to herring. And I think about my time in Alaska and going up to various public comment meetings related to the Tongass, where people were given just a few minutes to make their statements. And, you know, you were talking about this earlier, how those sort of limitations will never allow meaningful conversation. You know, you can't change someone's opinion in three minutes or even really get into any important details in that time. So do you think it's time for folks to really begin thinking about how these regulatory bodies can be ushered out before they allow more permanent damage? Definitely. And, you know, I'm not really sure how to do that if there was, you know, more local control. It's like, let's take a look at you know, how many people come in here to Sheetka or to Alaska, you know, for the oil industry, for the mining industry, um, for forestry, and where where are all of these, you know, so-called resources going? And, you know, people, if people don't understand our culture and this place, right place-based knowledge it's very one-dimensional and that is for me i believe the basis of source extraction is that color and really nothing else and it breaks my heart was down i was working on a project down on principles island just south of here and i was driving all over prince of wales with a friend of mine and it's awful what has been done to that island? There's clear cut after clear cut after clear cut. And I cannot imagine that happening here. And I think that it's going to take everyone to invest. And this is the, this is the last temperate rainforest of its size anywhere. And I really hope that people can get to know what that means. More people. I think it's going to take everybody coming together and saying, you know, this is a treasure. This is an incredibly beautiful place to live and work and to visit. And 
you know, after those four fish members came to the coup, the entire board, except for one, voted for all of the proposals that we wanted to people to vote against. And the one person that voted against it, he's from the interior, he's Athabasca, he's indigenous, and he's not on the board anymore. And I'm not sure how we um, get that to be a fair process. I think it come, it does come down to, uh, for me, sovereignty, uh, tribal sovereignty. A lot of people might not be familiar with that, but you know, tribes in the United States have a government-to-government relationship with the federal government because of all of the land and resources were taken. And we don't have that with the state. And we do have some with our local governments here, which is, you know, we're still finding our way. But unless Western institutions in general can come to a point of understanding that indigenous knowledge is valuable and that indigenous people are not the only ones that need to learn Western ways of being and Western values, but that Western society needs us and need to understand our way of being in a place, those changes are going to be really difficult. And I do see some places, you know, like at, at the university level and, you know, moving in that direction. And I really hope that people, you know, if people don't understand what sovereignty is, please, you know, read about it. And if you, if you don't know whose indigenous land you're on, find out and reach out reach out to people. Yeah. So important for those of us who aren't involved or aren't knowledgeable to get involved and learn and read and ask questions in a respectful way and engage in the process. We do need all hands on deck and For us to come together and build relationship, we need to have a foundation of understanding and really the patience and the time commitment to keep showing up in, you know, in a way that has longevity and, and yeah, that deep commitment. So I, I appreciate that reminder as well. And I'm sure those of us uh, listening in the audience, this, that call, um, that calling in for us to hear that is so important. I think we also need to continually be calling each other into the work. Yeah, so I really appreciate that. And now since 2002, the Sitka tribe of Alaska has been appealing to the Board of Fish with various different proposals to protect the herring population. And I mentioned this because it's been nearly two decades of working to protect the herring. And This timeline brings up a question for me on relationship, especially in a place like Alaska where the communities are small and there is a real necessity of maintaining relationships alongside organizing and campaigning. And I wonder if you can speak to how this work really involves working to instill responsibility and relationship throughout the community through ceremony like 
the Herring Kui and the importance of working to build allyship outside of one's own circle. That's one thing that is really good is it is a small community. And, you know, I think our reach can be so impactful. Opening up the Kui to people, I think, was part of a turning point, I think, that we're having here in Shitka. It's actually, it's pretty amazing. We have, that's one of the things I think that uh, we've been able to do is to be very visible around some of these issues. And the second year that we had the Kui, it was again open to people. And we actually had a symbolic uh, canoe journey from about seven miles north of Sitka to downtown Sitka. And then we had a parade. And again, everybody was invited. And we actually invited people to come and learn how to do beadwork and how to, you know, carve a paddle and how to make drums and how to weave and all of those things I don't think you know and we made it we made regular announcements and we reached out to people and I think in a lot of ways that was a first and um, the place that we had it was so crowded there were so many people and um, those of us who were working there were just like we have never seen this many local people here and for the parade as well, and the kui that we had down at the Alaska Native Brotherhood Hall, which has been mainly for Native functions, was full. And, you know, people asking what they could, we had people asking us what they could do and how they could contribute. And it's amazing how many people, even the non-Indigenous folk, had no idea we were still having ceremonies. They had no idea how important herring eggs were to us. So it's been, I think, a great learning exchange. And so we are working on other issues, I think, especially with the turmoil that we've had around race. We've been able to do some things. Um, like we had a statue of uh, Baranoff, who was a run who came here and it was in front of where we hold the city meetings. And we had a really pretty large group of, of supporters who said, you know, that that isn't right because he was very uh, destructive and violent with Alaska Natives, not only the people, but the Unang to the north. And so we had a lot of supporters and starting to get more supporters in, you know, in city government and we support them as well in what Again, it's just, it's saying we want to be inclusive. And for me, a part of it is that, you know, my, I, my culture, I believe, is just so beautiful. And that reciprocity and the, the healing that happens, that comes about when we gather as a community, I think is amazing. And I think that's how we get to know each other is to, you know, it, it's, you know, everybody I think has had collaborative projects where we sit together at the table and try to decide what to do. But it's the difference is that, you know, it's not a meeting. It's coming together to celebrate each other and to give each other the time and the space to do that. And I, I think it has been really impactful. And we have had, you know, more and more people wanting to come to the Kui. And I think because people are hungry to learn. People do want to learn. There's so many people 
that are open right now to you know extending that hand or and reaching for that hand and saying you know let's let's do this together let's learn how we can be part of the community that's so beautiful and inspirational and i'm like yes okay we can do this Oh, yeah. You'll come to the next one. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I want to be there. I'm, I'm thinking about how to make that happen. And yeah, I, I also want to mention um, earlier this year, the Sitka Tribe of Alaska won another round of its legal fight over the state's mismanagement of herring. And I wonder if you could share where you are now and what listeners can do to support especially if listeners are not from Alaska, and, and maybe also what's next. So the Secretary of Alaska filed a lawsuit. I think it was the end of 2019, after this, you know, 25 years of going to the Board of Fish. So there are three parts to the, the lawsuit. And the latest ruling came on November 30th of last year, 2020 where uh, the judge ruled that the Alaska Department of Fish and Game failed to follow regulations, requiring it to meaningful consider quality and quantity of herring spawn on branches when managing the commercial herring fishery in Sitka Sound. So the Alaska Department of Fish and Game under their management is supposed to be able to manage the fishery so that we as indigenous people have the opportunity to go out and get you know, um, herring eggs good quality herring eggs. And, you know, again, I, I don't even know how to describe it again, if you watch the video. I mean, there was a time when lay the branches out and you can get like an inch thick of herring eggs on that. And that's, you know, the quality that people were used to for a long time. And for the last 10 years, it's hit or miss. So, so basically, and when we, we would tell, uh, the manager that uh, there was no response ergo and the board of fish that was why the lawsuit was filed so um that that was the latest win but we don't know how that's going to be enforced so we're just waiting and then in march of last year the judge ruled that adf and g had failed to make required determinations regarding whether there is a reasonable opportunity for subsistence harvesters when managing the commercial fishery. And again, that also goes back to, you know, we haven't been able to get the, the herring eggs that we needed. And so now we are waiting for what could be the final ruling, but we're not sure from the judge. We had a hearing in, our STA had a hearing in January. And I'm not sure when we'll have a ruling on that, but if the judge rules against the tribe, then there will be a trial in June. And as people know, uh, Secretary of Alaska had to hire a law firm out of Anchorage um, that has handled what we what is called subsistence cases previously. Uh, and it's really hard to say some of these things without going into an explanation to people of what they are. But basically, subsistence is traditional harvesting, whether it's herring eggs or um, red red salmon um you know under alaska state laws people are allowed to do that but specifically for us the subsistence herring eggs are are the factor so 
The way that people can support is um, there's more information on our Facebook page, which is called the Herring Protectors, or you can support the Sitka Tribe of Alaska by sending uh, funds to help with the lawsuit. And you can get that on the, the address um, on the Sitka Tribe of Alaska, S-I-T-K-A um, website or Facebook page. And, you know, I think overall too, um, I'm not sure how it would affect what we're doing, but every year there's an opportunity to submit written testimony to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. But of course, that's mainly for uh, Alaska citizens. But in general, yeah, just contact us. We invite you to, you know, you can come to the Kui. Uh, we're not having, we're having a smaller celebration this year, um, next month. And I think to really learn more about indigenous people and indigenous rights, there is the uh, United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples and um, a Declaration of Human Rights. And the way that the Alaska Department of Fish and Game has, and the state of Alaska have been mismanaging the fisheries is in direct violation of many of the clauses in that. And I think as people become more educated, we're more likely to take action. So contact us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And yes, please do. And I will keep in touch and find ways that For the Wild can support. And yeah, and also in our show notes and through social media for all of you who are listening, we'll put up links on the website and such so you can find all this information easily. Well, Louise, thank you so much for this time. Like I said at the beginning, I felt honored then, and I feel so blessed to have been able to hear the depth of your, yeah, I just feel of your heart, of your knowing of this land and of yourself and in what we need to do moving forward, so Thank you so much for your time and your devotion. Thank you very much, Ayana. And thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Lake Mary, The Ascent of Everest, Alexandra Blakely, and Fountain Sun. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, and Francesca Glassbell, with special research assistance by Julia Jackson. 